Thanks for joining us for the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. Tony Hunter is the guest for today's episode. Tony Hunter is a global futurist, speaker, and foresight strategy consultant specializing in the future of food. He uses his Future Cubed methodology as a structured way of viewing the food, beverage, and ag industry's long-term future in 10 plus years while linking it back to current events. This enables a practical, real-world approach to the task of using foresight strategy to predict the long-term future of food. He is a passionate believer that agri-food tech offers massive opportunities to solve the problems of sustainability and feeding the growing global population. Tony travels the world using his distinctive combination of scientific qualifications, business experience, and detailed understanding of the exponential food technologies to deliver a unique perspective on the future of food. This week, we'll be doing something a little bit differently. I've decided to leave in some of the introductory conversation that I have with guests so listeners can see how the typical recording works. Here we go. You know, Tony, usually I, I ask the guest how to pronounce your name, but your name, I think I've already got down, Tony Hunter. Is that right? Perfect. It's, it's a hard one to get wrong. I expect even for Americans who, who say aluminum instead of aluminium. <laughs> <laughs> the bio will add in later. So at your convenience, after the recording, feel free to send over a bio and I'll record that and, and add it uh, later. And then like I had mentioned earlier, at any time, feel free to... Uh, if you want to repeat something, feel free to pause and then repeat it, and then we'll edit that out. Will do. So usually kind of like the last part of my administrative uh, piece is that I will say, Tony, welcome to the Future Food Show. And then you can go in and say, like, thanks for having me or something. And then we'll start with question one. How does that sound? That sounds good to me, Alex. Let's give it a go. Okay, cool. Tony, I'm excited to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. As we were talking before um, offline, uh, one of my most recommended podcasts, I say that without fear or favor, not because you're having me on it, but I always tell people, if you're going to listen to a podcast on cultured meat, future food, Alex's podcast is the one. I definitely appreciate that so much. And and so actually, let, let's talk about where we first met, because now we've run into each other twice, uh, yeah. once I think it was at the Alternative Protein Show when it was in San Francisco. Is that right? That's right. That's the first time we met face to face. I'd come across your podcast think before that, but um, yeah, I remember running into each other, running around at one stage, um, trying to help Olivia. I think was something that was going on. So yeah. And then again, we met at uh, well, we met in person at um, at Global Table. Yes, that's the, that's the second time. So once on your home soil and once on mine, Alex. So a good balance. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Global Table, are you planning to go again this year? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I thought it was a very good conference. Different focus to some of the other conferences, which are either more technical or narrower in their focus. I thought Global Table was good because it really does concentrate on the sustainable development goals as really the focus and the foundation of what they do. And I mean, we had John Kerry there and we had Howard Yana Shapiro there from Mars. So you've got to go the quality of the speakers that was there. You really couldn't complain, could you? Absolutely. And I mean, personally, it was, it was, for me, it was very cool to see the 
um, all of the Australian and, and also New Zealand companies that everyone I, I has uh, has been talking about. It was very cool to see see them in person and actually try the food there too. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that was when I've been over in, in San Francisco and come to, you know, go to the conferences over there. It's one thing reading about companies and hearing people speak and, you know, reading the magazines. It's another to meet someone in person and get a real feel for them and, and what they're doing. I think it's a completely different experience to sitting and listening or reading. So getting back into it, we'll start with the first question. Tell us about your background and how you actually first got into food technology. Well, Alex, um, I was one of the few people in my high school that knew exactly what they wanted to do when they left high school. And that was become a microbiologist. And I can remember saying to my mother, we said, Tony, what do you want to do when you, you know, for a job, when you go to university? Mum, I'm going to become a microbiologist. She looked at me, silence for a few seconds. And so I opened the cupboard door and I said, Mum, you see all the food in the cupboard there? See all those companies? She said, yes. I said, they all employ microbiologists. And she said, fine, okay, you can become a microbiologist. I have no problems with that. And I uh, went on from there and got a job in the wine industry, worked in the wine industry for a few years, which was very interesting. Age 17, got into a wine company, got into their laboratory there. And of course, wine very heavily based on microbiology, yeast fermentations, bacterial fermentations. So it was a great start. And from there, I went into the conventional meat industry and worked in that for about uh, 30 odd years, both in the industry itself, in technical and general management, and then um, as a consultant. And so that's really where I started in, in food technology. And as I got through my degree, which I did part-time, I actually added in the food technology stream as well. So I did a post-grad degree in microbiology, but did some food technology in my undergrad. Wow. Okay, cool. And this was mostly or all in Australia. Is that right? All in Australia. I was going to omit this part, but since we are doing the unabridged version, I wanted to say, you know, usually when we have these recordings, before the recording, I'll have a shot of espresso. But tonight, because of the time zone, I'm actually drinking a glass of wine. So I'll, I should say, I'll mention that since you started in, in the wine industry. <laughs> hey, that's cheating. You should have told me I could have had an early glass at this end too. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so it's so it's, it's 9 p.m. and 3 p.m., but you're on a Wednesday. I'm on a Tuesday. Is that right? That's, Is that the about the right time zone? That's right. Absolutely. Got it spot on, Alex. Really awesome that you had, had worked in, in the traditional meat industry. When did alternative proteins start popping up on your radar? And more specifically, what about cultured meat? Well, where it all started, Alex, is I started noticing things, you know, around about 2017, I suppose, is when I really started noticing things. Because as many of us in the industry do, you've got your industry newsletters. And I was getting a newsletter or two, and these things were popping up, these funny companies called Beyond Meat and impossible foods and so on. Then in, in 2017, um, when I found out that Tyson earlier on in late 2016 had taken a stake in Beyond Meats and impossible foods in 2017, you know, announced they were going to build a plant. And then in 2018, they got the White Castle, I pronounced it properly, Castle, not Castle, White Castle um, distribution. And I thought, wow, this stuff is really taking off. Here are technologies coming into the food industry that I've never seen before. 
And there are other things too, like, you know, genomics and microbiome was starting to come up, but really then started to think, well, I need to get involved in this. And then, of course, we've got um, Memphis that was established in 2015. They started to get more headlines in 2017 and 2018. And I thought to myself in early 2018, if I'm serious about this, I actually need to go over to the Good Food Institute conference because I come across that one very early in the year. They started advertising. I thought, you know, if I'm serious, I've got to get over there and have a look. And I just met such a great bunch of welcoming people over there who knew I wasn't a vegan or a vegetarian. They knew I'd been in the meat industry, but I've got to say, I had a warm welcome from everybody in sight. And, um, you know, I suppose just slightly as an aside, that's one thing I always say to any conventional animal agriculture people and people in the alternative side in the opposite is go to some of these conferences. I don't expect a beef farmer in Australia to go to San Francisco and come back a vegan from visiting GFI or CMS, the Culture Meat Symposium that you run, Alex, but at least you get an understanding of the technology and what's going on. And you're not going to get yourself spray painted or anything like that because you're a beef person. And if you're prepared to be open-minded, well, the other people will be open-minded too. And that's something I feel very strongly about in the whole thing. We see so much, um, so many people fighting against each other rather than just saying, okay, let me just listen and have an open mind. Go along to the conferences and listen to what's happening. So yeah, I went along to the GFI and that really galvanized me because I thought, yes, you know, I thought there was a niche in here um, for looking at these, these products and particularly with the cultivated meat um, I met a few people in the cultivated meat space down there. Um, Brian Spears was there, um, Nathan Lavon from Alet Farms. And I really got interested in it because, I mean, it's mammalian cells, it's biology, it's not quite microbiology as such, but very closely allied. And I just found the whole space fascinating. When we think of the alternative proteins now, of course, there's a large interest in companies like Beyond Meat because they've uh, they've gone to the stock market. They are a huge success. When when you first heard about Beyond or Impossible, what what did kind of people outside of the GFI and animal welfare and, and kind of future food uh, realm think? Oh, look, back in 2017, everybody was 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 laughing and just calling it you know science fiction and it'll never happen, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I was actually talking to a client this morning um, and they were offered investment in Clara Foods about 18 months ago. And I think the phrase the gentleman used was it seemed like so much scientific shit at the time that they didn't even consider it. And now you look at Clara, um, they've got a partnership with Ingredion and their product's going to be coming to market in the next couple of years. So, you know, that's really what most people were thinking. They're just thinking this is too much like science fiction. It's not going to happen if it does. You know, because they think linearly, if it takes five years to get to X, it'll take another five years to get to 2X. They don't realize it wasn't a straight line between zero and X. It was actually a very shallow curve. And to get to 2X might only take three years. And to get to 4X might only take another year. People think linearly in an exponential world. Because these companies, I say to people, these are not traditional food companies. Think of these as technology companies that make food. 
and anything to do with technology, as we know, the old Moore's law about doubling the um, speed of a processor or the number of transistors every two years, now apply that to food. And we see it with Impossible and Beyond at the moment. Every six months, they've got a new version, haven't they? They just keep improving and improving and improving. They're not like traditional food companies that go, we have a formula for a soup. It's selling. Nobody change a thing. Let's keep selling that for the next five or 10 years. And if we can get the cost of goods down by 3% and we can get 3% more sales, we'll all go to Hawaii next year and have our annual conference. I would suggest that either of the Browns from Beyond and Impossible, if they only thought they're going to get 3% increase, would go home crying. <laughs> they want another two zeros on the end of that, about 300% next year. I think that's right, right. More, in, more what they're looking for. So really, people were just very, very dismissive. We try to avoid using the word disrupt, at least in Silicon Valley, because we just hear it so much and it's it's very much overused. But you know, this this is really what has has happened. The meat industry is is in many ways being disrupted, and and it kind of came fast, like you said. It, it definitely was not definitely was not linear. You know, going back, you know, you mentioned that you do a little bit of consulting. How did you get started as a food futurist? And maybe first tell us what is a food futurist? Now, basically, what I do as a food futurist is I help companies understand how all the new technologies we're talking about now are going to affect them in 10, 20, or even 30 years' time. But I do that not from like, you know, here's a view of the Jetsons with flying cars and this, that, and the other, and then leave people to guess how the heck do we get there. I actually link it to what I call the signals that we are seeing now. So if you go back that 18 months ago, all the signals that were coming out, the establishment of new cultivated meat companies like Brian Spears and New Age Meats, they were just an indie bio at the time. And you looked around, you see Claire out there, you see Perfect Day, you see all these things going on, you go, wow, these are signals that something is, is happening. So I help people see how the signals we're seeing today are leading me to believe that there's a certain possible range of possible futures that are likely to come to fruition. Now, no one can tell you the future. If they say they can, they're a fool or a liar, but you can predict possible futures. I mean, the obvious one with say plant-based is plant-based takes over the world and in 10, 20, 30 years time, whatever, um, meat is only 5% and plant-based is 95%. Or it could be people go, no, I actually like meat from dead cows. Uh, I'll eat this stuff once a week. And plant-based turns out to be the niche 5% and animal agriculture, conventional animal agriculture turns out to be the 95%. Now, probably neither of those two extremes are necessarily the most likely, but they are possible. And there'll be another couple in the middle that will be the actual reality. And I help companies explore what are the possible futures so they can be prepared when they do their strategic planning today, what the future could look like in 10 years time. Two things come to mind. One is, I'd love to get your thoughts on the idea of, of GMO and, and why popular opinion is to stray away from GMOs, right? So I'd love to get your thoughts on that and, and maybe what the future outlook of, of that will be like. Yeah, I think that's, there's some interesting points, Alex, to unpack there. I mean, with GMO, the big failure of GMO was that nobody ever explained to the consumer what was in it for them. 
And most people have no idea what GMO is. I saw uh, some video clips from a lady back in February, March last year, she over from the States for a conference over here and interviews of people in the street about GMOs. You know, what do you think of GMOs? Do you eat GMO? No, 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 I steer away from GMOs. GMOs are bad for you. Okay, thank you. What does GMO stand for? Uh, gene, genetic, actually, I don't know. I just know that they're bad for you. So there's a whole raft of misinformation. That's not just the States. That just happened to be the lady who was from the States. I think that's most countries around the world. Nobody understands what a GMO is. And we've had GMO crops for 30 years. So how long do we actually want to go for before we figure that they are actually safe? So my view is that GMO crops with the right modifications, you can argue about we shouldn't have glyphosate resistant crops because glyphosate is bad, et cetera, et cetera. But that's just the one aspect of GMO modification of plants. I mean, they've saved the papaya industry with genetic modification of uh, the papaya crop. That's saved the entire industry. We can, we can do genetic modification or genetic editing with things like CRISPR-Cas9, which is a way of doing much more targeted editing of a particular organism without having to introduce any new genes from a foreign organism. So it's not the same as what you think of GMO, where maybe you're putting in the DNA from another organism. This is editing the DNA of that particular organism for traits that you want. So turning a gene on or off, removing a gene, something like that. And I think that if we're going to feed the old, you know, 10 billion people by 2050, um, to try and achieve that without genetic editing and genetic modification, I think is going to be extremely, extremely difficult. But we can't afford to let gene editing with the new gene editing technologies like CRISPR-Cas9 suffer the same fate as GMO. And if I just got one other thing there, people seem to think that traditional plant breeding is, I take all these seeds, I throw them into a field. One of them, one of the plants grows bigger, I take that one. I find another one that's got plumper seeds on it and I cross the two and I come back next year and do it again. They don't do that. Plant breeding is about taking, to borrow the uh, lab-grown meat thing, a petri dish of seeds, pouring mutagenic chemicals into them, ra inducing random mutations, taking a second petri dish, putting it in a, under a, in a nuclear reactor, bombarding it with gamma rays, inducing the mutations, throwing it into the fields and see what happens. If you get a five-headed tomato, maybe you don't want that one. But there's a thousand to fifteen hundred crops currently used that have been gene edited that way. Now you can't tell me that's targeted gene editing and that they know exactly what other mutations were caused by their method of mutagenesis. You know we're globally in the, in the middle of a of a an epidemic now with the coronavirus, and so how has that changed? either the way people look at food or or even how food is is being looked at right now i think that's going to be very difficult to know alex until we get further out because of course what's happening now is i'd be really really 
interested to see how the home delivery market goes in home delivery of groceries, meal kits and things like that, when people won't don't want to go out and have human to human contact. They just want the stuff delivered, don't meet anyone, don't breathe any of the same air. And you know, how will that go? Will we see um, a, a big rise, permanent rise, or just a temporary rise in home delivery of um, retail groceries? Of course, we're seeing in a lot of China and in Korea and Japan, a lot more of things like Uber Eats and home delivery of finished meals. And in Korea, they have meat vending machines. So you can go up there and in your meat vending machine at 2 a.m. when there's no one around, you, when you've got your mask on, you can buy your meat and take it home, risk-free. So I think that's gonna be really interesting as to whether people try this and go, hmm, actually, this is quite good. This is quite a good way of shopping. This is quite a good way of getting my food. I wouldn't have tried it unless coronavirus came along and I didn't want to go out in public, but maybe, maybe this is a good thing. So I think that's going to change. And obviously supply chain is a big issue. So is it going to change the world's supply flows in the, of ingredients and so on in the supply chain for manufacturing? I think, I don't think we're really going to understand that until things settle down again and we can analyze just what's changed. I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of talk about quality of food in Australia. When I was there visiting for Global Table, it was very hard to get a, a bad meal. Not only that, the grocery stores were really amazing quality just throughout. So, so why is the food quality in Australia so high? I think, Alex, there's a few reasons. I mean, we're very, very lucky here. We have lots of very good quality arable land. We have areas where even though there's drought in a lot of Australia, there's a lot of very good land, good water supply, arable land for all sorts of agriculture. And because Australia is a small country, we swap products a lot. So products grown, you know, two, 3,000 kilometres north of Melbourne, right down the south of Australia, in, when they can't grow a crop, they'll just get some from up in Queensland and vice versa, a cold weather crop we can't grow in Queensland, we get that down from Victoria. So I think there's a lot of travel of ingredients throughout the country, which means we've always got good quality, fresh ingredients. We do import some, some veg, fruit and vegetables, yes, to fill gaps, but we have a very good and vibrant um, agriculture side. And I think the other thing is, as far as if you look at um, processed foods or, you know, anything other than whole fruits and vegetables. We've got a very, very good, very vibrant food technology community, and they've got the latest technologies from around the world. And we have major ingredients companies, people like McCormick and IFF, and also we've got a joint venture from Griffith Foods over here. So we've got major ingredients manufacturers here as well. And I think the other thing that we have is that we have a great bunch of universities. We've got some great academic knowledge and they make some great inventions and things that we can use over here and commercialize to make great products. The recent disasters with the fires, has everything for the most part been uh, corrected since the fires in Australia? Well, for the first time the other day, Alex, we had no fires in New South Wales, one of our biggest states. They were all out. We had great rains about three weeks ago, a week or two of rain, which really helped. 
But the biggest issue we've got now for our agriculture is we now have all this ash. And now that we've got rain, that's going to be washed into the streams and that's going to get into the dams. And so what's the quality of our water supply going to be like, both for human drinking water, but at least we have, obviously we pr process the, the, the water to render it clean drinking water. But, uh, you know, the acidification of streams and creeks and things like that, that's going to be a real unknown again, just to see what that uh, brings, because it was the biggest fires we've ever seen in Australia. We've never seen anything like it. I think it was, I think you guys had 700,000 acres or hectares in California, and we had five or six million burning here. Wow. So, you know, there's absolutely massive fires all up and down the entire East Coast. Queensland got up lightly compared to the others, but still we had significant bushfires around. And that, that has affected, you know, a lot of people, livestock um, being burnt, and then, then the floods come along and drown some more. Um, so, yeah, it's been really, really tough for our farmers. And again, it's like these things, we've got to wait and see what will the extent of the damage be in the short term. It's significant. Long term, how long is it going to take for the farmers and the agriculture to recover? I heard that because of the, the food quality in Australia is so high, wealthy areas of like China and different parts of Asia, there's a special type of occupation, which essentially is somebody who flies to Australia, gets food, and then brings it back with them to like mainland China, for example. Is that a thing? Yeah, I mean, I think what it is, is Australia for a long time has had a great reputation, the old, um, you know, um, clean and green. And I mean, a lot of countries do have that, but I think Australia has been very successful in trading on that, and partly because we have a much lower density of, of population in Australia. So the pollution is spread around a little bit more maybe than otherwise it, it would be. And you, you, we, we haven't had the food scandals like we had um, baby formula contamination in China. So we had people coming down from China and actually buying baby formula, um, or as you say, using their personal shoppers to come over or source products from over, over here. So I think the, the phrase I just remember is the Daigou, so D-A-I-G-O-U, and they, they will actually act as your personal shopper from China and come over and select products or maybe do a parallel import channel of products from Australia for the Chinese market. And generally our, our, our produce will command a fair premium in the market in China because of the reputation that we've got. Interesting, okay. For Australia and actually the rest of the world, have you seen a trend in food entrepreneurship? I think as we all know, Alex, I mean, the. The hot spot of entrepreneurship is definitely Silicon Valley um, in the States. I mean, look at how many food companies of these new food technologies are coming out of, out of San Francisco. I think also we're seeing the rise of some of that in the UK and in Europe. Australia is still a bit behind the curve. We've only got two uh, cultivated meat companies in Australia. We've got Vow Foods and Huros, and we've just got our first major plant-based company called V2 Foods over here. They do a Whopper for Burger King, which we call Hungry Jacks over here. So we're just starting to see those sorts of things come up. A lot of entrepreneurship in more the agri-tech, 
So, you know, drones and satellite technologies, things to help make crops grow faster and bigger and better. We've seen quite a bit of investment entrepreneurship there. But really in the downstream, the food technology side of things, actually making products, that's still nowhere near as advanced as it could be. It's starting to get there. We're starting to see a new generation of entrepreneurs come through and entrepreneurial culture start to take hold. But in my view, we're still quite some years behind places like, like Silicon Valley. And so what do you think is next on the food frontier? And maybe, maybe tell me what you're most excited about when it does come to the future of food. I think the biggest driver of the future of food, Alex, is going to be personalization or personalized wellness. We're seeing personalization coming everywhere. Even something simple like when you watch Netflix, you get the emails about, as soon as you watched X, you might like Y. And that's personalization because to sort through every movie and TV show on Netflix to try and find something we like, it's, it's an amusing thing to do for half an hour, but um, gee, I wouldn't want to do that every time I wanted to try and find a show. So personalization is really coming in. There's a, there's a cosmetics company, L'Oreal, in the US, the ladies and the men, should they wish, can get their personalized hair coloring just for them, absolutely personalized, delivered to their door for 20 US dollars. And everywhere you go, we're seeing personalization. And we, if you look at the growth in things like genomics, where you've got companies who are doing nutritional profiling based on your genes, and the microbiome, where they test the, test the bacteria in your gut for gut health and tell you what you should or shouldn't eat. And it's becoming more and more individual for us. And we want things that are good for us, not things that are good for, you know, the average person or 80% of the population or whatever. We want to say, no, no, what's good for me? I've got a certain gene profile. I've got a certain microbiome. I like certain things. I want things that I like that are good for me and not just for my physical health. I want it to make me feel good. I want it to help boost my brain power. I want to feel happy as well. So I want all these things and I want them just for me. And we're just seeing signals of that all the time. Everywhere we look, personalization is just coming to the fore. So I think the future of food, looking out, you know, 10, 20, probably more than 20 to 30 years is fully personalized food where you can actually get a, a nutritionally balanced diet that's suitable just for your metabolism, including your, your microbiome and, and your genetics. And that's the one I think is the real challenge is how are retailers, manufacturers going to cope with that? You can't make 325 million different loaves of bread for everybody in the US it's not going to happen. So how do we break that up into bite-sized chunks, pun intended, and enable us to increasingly, as we go further and further downstream to the consumer, end up with an absolutely perfectly personalized nutritional experience for everyone? I think that's, that's really, really interesting. And as the microbiome testing becomes a lot more reliable in some areas it's probably only 60 or 65 percent reliable in some traits so when it's you've had your microbiome done and your and your genes done and you're 95 percent certain that what of what you should or shouldn't eat i think that's when you're really going to go well wait a minute why should i settle for second best for my health 
and my general wellness. So that's that's my prediction as to where the where, where the consumer is going and where technology needs to follow. Alex, I'm definitely excited about that. I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but what I do know is that I do want it. Right, I do, I do want that level of personalization. So before we wrap up here, I want to throw in a, a bonus question. Um, I want to ask you what type of new food or future food um, that's available now have you recently tried? Oh, gee, that's that's an interesting one, Alex. I'm trying to think of most of the products that I'm looking at are either not available in Australia or they're going to be in production in the next few years. Like I would love to have tried the perfect day animal free whey ice cream when that came out if i could have had that shipped to australia without thawing like i certainly would have um, so i think that was a really interesting proof of concept product um, obviously looking at the latest products I'd, I'd love to get a piece of steak from the aleph farms people and see how that's going but really honest alex i, I there's nothing that i've tried that's uh, cutting edge enough for me to actually tell you about <laughs> <laughs> well, well, those are definitely uh, two very exciting ones to anticipate, <laughs> and I and I hope they ship that ice cream out again. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm hoping I happen to be in the states. I'm I'm going to try very hard to get over to the states for a conference or two this year. So hopefully, when I'm over there, I'll be able to get some of these products. You can get in touch with Tony at futuresforfood.com. Tony, are there any last insights that you might have for the listeners today? Oh. Got one one last insight for you, Alex. We've just talked about how food, we're going to buy food for our health, for our wellness. So it begs the question, if people are eating food for their health, what industry are food companies in? I say they're in the health industry and that we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years, the convergence of food companies and medicine to generate whole new companies that we haven't seen because people are eating for their health not just for fuel not even just for taste so that is something i can't imagine so that's cool well tony thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insight on the future food show thanks very much alex and as i say i can't recommend uh, alex's podcast enough guys if you haven't heard them all go back for at least a year and, and have a listen thank you so much 